Welcome to the Mission Driven Leader, presented by TaleoConnects.com, where we explore the new, unknown, and innovative themes for work and give people the ability to show up resilient every day. Here are your hosts, former Chief Knowledge Officer of NASA, Ed Hoffman, and partner and Vice President of Portfolio Management at Taleo, Laurel Sim. Welcome back to the Mission Driven Leader podcast. And as always, Ed, I'm excited to see your face, even even if it's from far away. And uh, I'm also really impressed by the guest that you're bringing in today. I, I've been reading his book, and and uh, he's got some real shenazel going on. So I like it. That's a Canadian name, shenazel. It, it is. It is shenazel. I don't even know if it's Canadian. It might just be Laurel. Like that's fine. Sounds like something Snoop Dogg came up with. <laughs> Oh, he probably is stealing it from me right now. Nick. <laughs> That's right. Could be. Yeah, but he's not a guest, though. No. Language is important. I consider Nick a friend, uh, a you. colleague, and, and he is an expert. He, he works with organizations, and really important thing is efficiency and effectiveness and the fact that we've talked about this. We're out of control. We don't have time for the things that, that we want to do, and... Actually, one of the things I was going to, because I'd like to, to start by asking you, assuming that you don't have time for the most important things in your life, Laurel, what would you like more time for? This is also to demonstrate yeah, that we don't plan well, these things ahead of time. We, we plan nothing, actually. That's the best part of our yeah. relationship. I mean, is there, maybe you have time um, for everything you want, but. No, no, no. Because no, you don't have time. Is that because you don't have time to plan? Yeah. Oh, right? burn. No, because we're, we're more authentic this way, Nick. This is more authentic. That's my answer anyways. Um, I would say if I had more time, it would be to give back to like my community and like my my family and friends. Like I, I have a good focus on that, but at times I'm like, oh, I could have done that better. Um, so I think that would be my, I think that would be my answer. I think that's a fantastic question. That's yeah, good, what's yours? That's a good answer. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. well, I'm going to steal your answer because it, it makes us sound good. I would give more time to my community and family. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. mean, um, I, you know, it centers around the premise uh, of Nick's work. And we, we've known each other for many years. I've been fortunate. Nick uh, is a guest lecturer at Columbia University and some of the courses I'm doing. I'm trying to see if uh, maybe you can do a course there uh, to, to teach some of us. But when I think about Nick, I think one of the things you're trying to do is help individuals, teams, and organizations, you know, get smarter about how time is used. And a lot of the mm -hmm. principles in your book, you know, come up for air is really excellent because it gets into actual tips about how you get control over things. Uh, and to me, that's a major issue because I'm a person as you know, I like to do a lot of things. I've been called back to my NASA days. Uh, some people called me the beagle. And I thought it was because I was friendly and wagged my tail. I was told because I'm all over the place. Oh, I thought, you have, I thought because you have a big sniffer. I have a big, well. Is I that what you sniffer. also call a shenazel? A shenazel. <gasps> shenazel. Right. You know yeah. what? It can go in a lot of spots. I'm not going to lie. That's why I use but it. It's, uh, but it's an important thing uh, in terms of, I think, the, the attraction I have for your work 
because the biggest issue that I think people have is they have so many ideas, so many things you want to do. You want to work with community. You need time for family. You want to go on different uh, initiatives in terms of the work that is being started. And we set up too many things. We're unorganized. And in many cases, the most important thing doesn't get started. So I think that's the the notion behind come up for air. And uh, that to me is my excitement. Uh, I, I think, uh, Laurel, you can probably learn some things uh, today in the conversation. I'm, that I, First off, I can always learn some stuff, but the way you said it made it sound as though I need to learn a lot, of which I do. So thank you for that yeah. reminder. Um, but yeah, Nick, I own a, I own a management consulting firm in, in Canada. And so efficiency is like, it's like I've got a big heart spot for it. Like it just, it matters so much to me. And I get very frustrated, disappointed, um, even confused when, when you're kind of moving an organization down a certain pathway and then all of a sudden it just completely drops, right? Like they've started, they're doing good. And then it just completely falls off. Do you ever, do you ever come across that? Well, I think that if you, and first of all, Ed, the pleasure is all mine. I love always when we get to hang out and, you know, jam, jam on the Columbia courses. So, uh, that that's a pleasure for me. Um, yeah, I think that companies always hit a tipping point if they are just too focused on short-term activities or top line, and they don't allocate a certain percentage of efforts to long-term initiatives and bottom line things that will impact their bottom line, you know, foundational elements, like what we're talking about here, operational efficiency, you know, you get to a certain point and then you just hit this you hit this wall that you can't break through because you just are then spending all of your time going on a scavenger hunt, which I talk about in the book, or searching for things that are misorganized. And so at a certain point, the complexity scaled and the scavenger hunt has exploded to the point where the ratio of high-level work to low-level work just gets to a, a breaking point. I, uh, I definitely have... Uh a couple of clients that I'm really trying to support right now that feel very chaotic and, and, and it's, everything is exactly where you're going with it right now. Um, yeah. so what so, kind of management consulting do you do? Um, so I work in 17 different industries right now. Um, most of it focuses typically on the project delivery side of things, the IT side of things, but I also have been helping to build out corporate roadmaps and things like that to help, create efficiency early on so that they, they can see what their runway is, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you, are you finding that people are having a stronger appetite to investing in efficiency now versus, uh, in the past, you know, with a recession that's happening and budgets getting cut and hiring freezes happening? I think there's a lot more talk about it and the desire is there and then they build the roadmaps and then they shelve them and they get very dusty and then they're like, Oh, remember we had these roadmaps. Right, right, right. That was awesome. And then, then they, it's almost as though they don't know how to execute from their, their in really good intentional planning is kind of what I'm noticing. Yeah. I'm thinking that a lot of people, you know, I think we think, okay, we know how to do it. We're successful. We're smart. Right. And, um, and we came from a world that was slower, you know, more than, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it was definitely slower. And so I think we know kind of how to use things. We want to talk to you about, you, you have really fascinating, I think, interesting notions of email that it's often used wrong. 
And um, I, I want to give you time to talk about the larger framework, but maybe jump into you basically uh, say that people use email wrong, that it really shouldn't be used for internal team kind of meetings. It, it really has, uh, it, it really creates more of the clutter than you need. Maybe you can talk about your thoughts about yeah. the, the, the misuse of email as a communication tool. Well, you know, my company leverage, so let me just back up for a quick second. So my book is all based off of uh, firsthand experience. My company leverage does operational efficiency training and consulting for a variety of industries and teams from seven figures up to hundreds of millions of dollars. And we found that pretty much it doesn't matter the industry or the size, everyone's got very similar issues. And so I lay out a framework for how to be efficient as an organization. Um, and it's called the CPR framework. And the C stands for communication. So what we're talking about here with email falls into that C bucket. And email is an interesting one. And you know everyone's unique, but at the same time, they're not. So when we work with companies, you have to be strategic where you want to start in terms of cleaning up the mess. And people are all drowning in work at full capacity. That's why I called my book, Come Up For Air. The number one thing that people say to me is, how are you doing? I'm drowning. And I've been there too myself, so I know what it feels like firsthand to drown. And so you have to be strategic where you start with cleaning up the mess. And you can't clean everything up at once because there's probably hundreds or thousands of improvements that could be made. And so what you need to do is you need to always start with what's going to give me the highest leverage, no pun intended. So what's, what could I spend a few hours on or a little bit of time on that very quickly is going to generate a return on time. So just like you invest in the stock market and you get a return on investment, I look at time like an investment. It's an asset to me, just like a, money is an asset, time is an asset, and you can get a return on time. And just like you can spend money, you can spend time, but similar to how you can invest money, you can invest time. And so where can you invest your time that's going to give you the highest leverage? And maybe it takes you five hours to learn something but after you learn that and you set it up, maybe you're saving an hour a week. And so after the five week mark, you've broken even on this investment of time. And now you, in, you know, for the rest of your life, you just got the gift of an extra hour back. And usually email is a very strong starting point because it's a tool that everyone uses. Every person listening to this podcast right now uses Gmail or Outlook. It's been around for decades and no one's ever taught you how to use it right. And it's something that we see on average, depending on your volume of email you're getting in, you could save three to five hours a week easily. And the first step, and we teach people, it's one of the core things that we're training companies on and teams on is our inbox zero training. And for those that aren't familiar with the phrase inbox zero, it basically means when you open your email, you should have less than say 20 or 30 emails in your inbox, read or unread. And a lot of people think that's impossible listening to this, but I can promise you I've worked with people with hundreds of thousands of emails and it's not impossible. The very first step, what does make it though harder is you've adopted bad habits that we have to untrain. And usually unlearning is more important than learning. And so we have to do some unlearning activities on people. And the first step in the unlearning is what is email? What's the purpose? When do you use it? And the answer to that is email is just an external to-do list that other people can add to. It primarily should be used for external communication. And just like you want to clear off your to-do list um, because 
you know, it feels good. There's something called the Zigernick effect, um, which is, you know, it feels good to check things off. It's the same thing with email. It's just a to-do list that other people can add to. And just like you want to clear out your to-do list, you want to clear out your email. And by not doing it, it's adding extra stress, wasted time, because even if you have a system with read and unread, your eyeball is still processing, reprocessing the same information hundreds and hundreds of times. And it's adding stress, wasting time, and you're missing opportunities. Like every single client that we've ever worked with discovers some email that got missed that was worth a lot of money to them. And so in the book and at, and at Leverage, we lay out um, a strategy and framework that we teach that helps you, get to, helps you get to zero and stay at zero. Yeah. And I've learned things from the... Uh, I said that like I'm surprised that I learned things, but... Um, I'm one of those, you know, I grew up on email that for my generation was like a major technology breakthrough. And so everything goes through that. Uh, but it always used to annoy me, uh, uh, my NASA days where someone in the same building or office would send me an email and I said, well, you're in the office next to me. Why don't you just walk over here and and we can talk about this thing. But you talk about something uh, in the book that I think is interesting. Often we use, you don't use this, but I would say I see kind of a tag at email where someone gives you an email and then you have the action. And, And so it becomes, what are the roles? What are the responsibilities? And why am I touching this email? Why am I doing something? And what's the reaction to that? And I think you cite that the average person in an office gets over 121 emails a day, of which half of which are are spam. And so the ability to manage that, just to archive it, is a, is yeah. the big lesson. Stop, just archive it. You don't have to worry about it disappearing. Is one of those important points, and it changes the whole whole, at least for me, mindset. Uh, once I see this well, stuff cleared. Once you're clear, before getting into how to use email, and we lay out strategies of, you know, when should you use a folder? When should you delete versus archive? Using search, using advanced features. Um, it always starts with when to use email. What's the purpose, right? And so 90-something percent of email shouldn't even be an email in the first place. Right. And so the best way to get to inbox zero is to get to email zero. Move all the information that shouldn't be going to email into the appropriate spot. So people are using email like a Swiss army knife. They use it to uh, message their team, message their clients. They're using it to task manage, to project manage. Some people use it to hack together a wiki, right? If you were going to go into the forest and try to chop down a tree, would you rather have a Swiss army knife or a chainsaw? And so different aspects of business, like project management, and this is what we connect over, Ed, like there are tools built for purpose in that space, right? People are hacking email for the wrong use case. If you want someone to write a report by Friday, email isn't the best tool, right? You want to use a work management tool so that you can click a button and answer that question in one click, right? You should be able to, anything that is actionable that you want to hold someone accountable to Right. That's where that, that's the mental trigger that it should go into a work management tool and right. the, the things in a work management tool. Like I should click a button. What did I what do I need to do today? What did I delegate to someone? What did I delegate that's past due? What's the status of this project? So much of that, though, is happening over email. And it's just not built for that 
it's not built to answer those questions. And so it just causes unnecessary friction in, you know, getting answers that, that you might need. So first it should be an external, it should be for external communication, Slack, Microsoft teams, internal communication. Even if you don't use these tools properly, just this alone reduces the volume. And it's all about how do you find stuff as quickly as possible? You know, if I could summarize my book, the name of the game to have a high performing, efficient team is you set up systems and processes to optimize for retrieval of information versus what's happening now is people are doing things to optimize for transferring information. Pull it's a subtle, push, but it's, right. yeah. And it's natural when you're out of bandwidth and you're at full capacity and you're drowning in work, you know, the obvious thing to do is you just start playing hot potato and it's just like, get it off your plate as fast as possible. But in math, we call this a local optimization. And if everyone's locally optimizing, you know, globally, you're going to be suboptimal. So really you want to be thinking, I care about how do I make the team, the organization optimal? And that's, that's a complete fundamental shift in strategy. And that changes the game to being a global optimization game. And people should be setting up systems and processes to retrieve versus transfer, which means you take pause, you put things where it belongs. But at the very least, if you know, um, hey, what did that client say to me? I know most likely I should look an email. If it's, you know, hey, what did Aiden, you know, when did, what did Aiden tell me about this thing? Well, if it's communication, it's probably going to live in our internal communication because Aiden's on my team. You know, what's, what's the status of this project? Well, I'll probably find that in our project management software. Of course, you need to use these tools properly, but at the very least, just even knowing which tool to click to open is the starting point right. and people aren't even there yet. So you have to know where to click to even get started finding what you're looking for. And that's the whole point of my framework. Um, I, I could actually just talk about this one topic for hours. I'm really quite sure, but I'm going to ask one more question. Then we'll move on to the, the P in the conversation. Um, what do you think was the hardest habit that you had to fix and what, what, what like tools did you use for the, the, the bad hat, the one bad habit that you had that you're like, Oh my gosh, I just got to own this and solve it. Hmm. I'm I'm just perfect, so I don't have bad habits. I can't <laughs> that's why you're Ed's that friend. That's why okay, we're that's why we're connected here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't know what that's like. No, I. Here's the thing that I've fallen into that I've gotten better over time. There's a huge, <clears throat> there's a huge um, shift right now to asynchronous, and you'll read so many articles about the benefits of asynchronous communication. And it's true. There's tons of benefits to asynchronous. You know, we we probably run. 80% asynchronous. And the benefits are obvious. You don't have to go back and forth to plan something. Uh, time isn't linear. Your time at 9 a.m. on a Monday might be a much more valuable time slot than 7 p.m. on a Friday when you're in the back of an Uber and you've had 100 Zoom calls and you're dead. So if you can opt, not a just save time. Wine. There you go. So, you know, your hourly rate, if you're a consultant, say it's uh, let's just say easy math, $100 an hour. If you're in the back of an Uber and you're exhausted and you don't have your laptop, it might be worth 20 an hour. But if you you know, just had a relaxing weekend and it's 9 a.m. and you just worked out, had a coffee, maybe it's worth 500 an hour. And so you have to not just save time, but you need to optimize time. So asynchronous is a great way to help you on the optimizing time side because then you can take back control and decide when you want to respond. So now all of a sudden that Uber ride 
you can make more use of it because you could watch a video or respond to someone asynchronously. Um, but back to kind of where I've fallen into the, to the problem, to problems. So again, I really promote asynchronous, but you have to be careful. And I think something that people aren't talking about is the downside to asynchronous and when not to be asynchronous. And so we've tilted in the past too far asynchronous. And anytime you're having a, a tough conversation with someone, there's a performance issue. There's a complex thing that requires a lot of collaboration. You know, I've seen firsthand the frustration and the and the time traps of 30 back and forths where people aren't understanding what's going on because there is a benefit to being in person or over Zoom and you can hear someone's face, their inflection. And so there are times and places for asynchronous versus synchronous. And, you know, stuff that we've had to learn the hard way is having frustrating asynchronous back and forths that should have just been resolved in a five-minute Zoom. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I uh, I definitely fall into that category and a lot of the other categories. So I got to get better so that I can have Nick back on the show and he won't be so embarrassed with my behaviors. Um, <laughs> let's let's move on to the P. What do you think, Ed? Is it is it is it the capital P? Well, time? this is a bit, you know, this is a real big thing because we're we all come together around projects. And one of the things that Nick talks about, we're in a project world. Right. Uh, and uh, the nature of projects really happen around things that you have to work with people in different places, different functions, different areas. How do you coordinate? How do you plan with with uh, with this kind of a uh, work environment? And so I think you have a lot of interesting uh, things there in terms of I think you say that planning is the hardest part. Because of the scope of it uh, and uh, the maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but. How, how do you approach in planning in project-based organizations? It's the, the key starting point um, that you have to consider for the folks who are listening to this. Um, yeah, I think that, I think that, you know, all of it's easy, all of it's hard. It's just also, I thought I read in your book, it says here that this is the hardest part. <laughs> so I, it could be. Yeah, yeah no, it's going to go it, search it, that in out. In a lot now, of cases right? it is. In a <laughs> okay. lot of cases it, it, it is. Um, um, I think it really just starts with some mindset shifts. A lot of people have never heard of tools like Asana or right. Monday or any of these tools. They don't think in terms of these things. They're used to the hardest part is the behavior change. So if you get yeah. someone that doesn't has never opened up one of these tools, they're used to managing tasks and projects out of email. Um, you know, it's a it's quite a big behavior change that you have to you have to teach. And one of the benefits of email over these other tools, as you um, also know, is these tools only are valuable if you have adoption and coordination amongst, you know, a set of people yeah. using it together, right? It's like, what's the value of a cell phone if you're the only person in the world that owns a cell phone? Nothing. You have no one to talk to. So the value of any network um, uh, grows exponentially with the size of the number of people in the network you know, using, using that tool. And so if you're a team of 20 and only 10 people are willing to open up that tool and the other 10 are refusing to, you're almost punishing the 10 that are willing to kind of get on, get on board because now they have to look in a project management tool, but they have to start now keeping track of preferences like, oh, well, Ed likes to use Gmail still. So if it's a task, I've, I'll put it in the task, but then I have to copy and paste it into an email to Ed and Laurel is using it, so I don't have to do that with Laurel, but Nick likes Slack. You know, work's already hard enough. 
Yeah. And so to keep track of people's personal preferences is just not a reasonable ask. And so all this being said, email is a good starting point because even if people don't adopt the inbox zero techniques that we lay out all at the same time, you still benefit greatly from being an early adopter because it's a single user activity in the sense like it doesn't matter how other people are using their email. If you use it right, you'll save time. With collaboration tools, though, you know, the keyword is collaboration there. You only get value if people are also in it. And if you're, you know, communication is the response you get, not give. So if you're not getting responses from people in these tools, you're not really properly, you know, getting any value out of them. So the challenge with those tools is you have to, you know, identify kind of like a, a team at a time that all kind of get on the same page that they're going to change the behavior. And at a certain point, we're going to do a cutover and we're all going to use that tool in a certain way so that you don't punish the early adopters because the slower ones uh, don't. And I think that that's probably why in the book you're, you're, you're referring to that, that it takes a bit, bit longer. It's not that any of this is necessarily rocket science, you know, <laughs> to make my rocket science uh, jokes right. with Ed, but you know, it does require some behavior change. It does require from the top down, um, you know, buy-in and they need to be behind this and, and, you know, maybe even, uh, prioritize it as one of the quarterly OKRs. Like, Hey, we're going to roll out a project management software this quarter. So we're going to shift some of the priorities and instead of, you know, setting a hundred revenue targets or initiatives just for revenue, we're going to allocate some of our capacity towards foundational things that we know in the short term will take a bit of time investment, but just back to that spending versus investing, we know that in a 12 month period, it's going to generate a bigger return than some of the other things, because at some point people might get an extra 20%, 30% productivity and capacity that then could be reinvested into, you know, future revenue producing projects. I think a lot of the uh, what you talk about in your process, you have to make a decision in terms of how you as a team, as a unit are going to use things. So one of the, the challenges I see is we tend to use so many different tools, so many different approaches. Uh, one of my, my pet peeves is I'm always being asked, can you send me that presentation? And it's like the presentation is in this system. Why am I looking to get the presentation, send it to you a different way, then it doesn't open. And it's and at the end of the day, it's in a it's in an area. So it's it's the fact that we we set up a lot of different systems, a lot of different tools, a lot of different places to go find things. And so then we turn back to email saying, Hey, can you just send me that uh, that link or the yeah, yeah. and it's back to that um, Swiss Army knife example, you know, people will argue all the time, well, it's just so much easier. I have one place to look. And it's yeah. a compelling argument. So, um, yeah, you have one place to look, but email has specific functionality to solve specific problems, right? Yeah. I mean, just the logic of email, it's its chronological. You know, the most recent thing is at the top, and that's as basic as that. Project management tools have different functionality. You can slice and dice things in different ways, click buttons and answer different questions that you just can't in email. So they're all good tools, but they serve different purposes. And if you fall into... if if you're not if you're not trained on best practices of when and how to use all these different tools, 
then it can make matters worse and it can perpetuate the scavenger hunt. But the value that we're adding and what my book is adding is it tries to give you a guideline and a framework to the best practices so that it is adding value and you don't need to keep falling into that trap of the Swiss army knife. Yeah. We're, we're, um, we're going to take a, a brief commercial, but before we take that commercial, um, you know, we need to know something personal about you, Nick. So I'll give you time to think about it. What, if you were an insect, what would you be? Cause Ed would actually be a cricket cause he loves being able to make noises and nobody can see him. I so, love Buddy Holly. Yeah, that's, yeah. Oh, there you go. So we'll be right back. We'll get back to the rest of the episode in just a moment. But first, a word from our presenting sponsor, TaleoConnects.com. As a manager, you know how important it is to solve issues right the first time. If you don't, you risk wasting precious time, money, and resources on things that could make the problem even worse. That is why at Taleo, we start by getting to the root cause of your specific problem so that together we can implement the solution that gets you the results you are looking for the first time. Taleo's unique approach to management consulting and resourcing is focused on building a community of experts that work together to help clients solve complex problems and find success in their businesses. We work collaboratively with you to implement the solution that will solve the root cause of your problem, not just the symptoms of that problem. From management consulting and project management to staff augmentation and resource recruitment, Taleo's trusted team can help you take your organization to the next level. If you're interested in learning more about how Taleo can help you overcome your organization's obstacles and take your business to the next level, visit TaleoConnects.com today. Welcome back to the, oh, my dogs, they're going crazy. Can you hear them? Those, they're so cute, little jerks. Uh, Sounds like the hound. Sounds like the yeah. hound of the Baskervilles. They, uh, wow. they're, they're just letting me know that I got some mail. So there you go. Okay. Um, so, so Nick, if you were an insect, what would you be? I know, it's not easy. Never really, uh, never really thought of this one. Nick has um, probably never been asked this question at any oh, of the this professional is, this is gatherings, the tough organizations, the or interviews that yeah, we bring Nick Sodenberg here and we ask him if you were an insect, what kind of an insect would you be? Okay. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's yeah. a good one. <laughs> uh, for maybe a cockroach because you can't really kill me. Oh, <laughs> that's a great one. That's actually I, that's actually excellent. I grew up in New York, in Brooklyn, and so I, I completely respect cockroaches because you cannot kill cockroaches. And yeah, and right. I've read reports, evolutionary reports that say after humans are all gone and animals and mammals are gone, cockroaches will still be around. They'll, they'll so, take over the world. Yeah. There so if I were if I were asked the question, my brothers would say she's a mosquito because she's so annoying and she buzzes around me and she like just bites at me and but then I can. Mm you know, basically kill her, aren't, which isn't a good thing. Aren't mosquitoes the most deadly? Uh, don't they kill the most number of people a year? Um, he's, he's figured well, you out fairly quickly. So there was going to be the next part of my answer. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm very dangerous, Nick. I, I come off, yeah. flip it, but there's a lot of shenazel here. I'm pretty sure it's it's uh, that and then hip. I think hippos come after yeah. mosquitoes. Yeah, hippos are very, yeah. That's why I live in Canada. No hippos yeah. here. 
You guys have mosquitoes or is it too cold up there? Oh no, we got cold. we got we got really? huge mosquito. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. yeah what's like, your what's the most enough. dangerous uh, animal in uh, Canada? Uh well I would say the grizzly bear. Okay. Um and then do you guys have polar bears up there? We do, but they're they're way, they're way up. Yeah. Um, away from and people. then I would say like I would say cougars are are pretty tricky as well, to be honest. Yeah. And we've got wolves, so okay. I don't know. Throw those three together. Right. Um and grumpy grumpy old men, they're pretty dangerous with Why are you looking cars. at me? I'm just saying it. Just, just saying. saying. Yeah. Okay. So let's uh should let's we talk about meetings. We... One of the things, I oh. hate meetings. We, we, I was back in, this, people get together, they stay in a room, they look at each other, they kind of do what we're doing, and a decision isn't made, and then we agree to meet again in the afternoon. Um, why do we do too many meetings, Nick? And uh, you have thoughts on how to make that, how to save significant uh, time just and being smarter on meetings. And can I add to that? And huh? can I add to that before you answer, no. Nick? Yes, so you mind your business over there. Um, and why do we have to have a meeting to talk about the decision to then make the meeting at the next meeting, the decision at the next meeting? Why do we, why, why, why? Well, I think the problems with all these meetings that you're um, bringing up is meetings don't have clear purposes, clear pre-work that's done. People, you know, it's, meetings are probably one of the biggest costs in companies. When you think yeah. about how much people are spending meetings, you know, even the three of us, Right now, this this one hour conversation, you know, if you take everyone's hourly rate, you know, we're talking thousands of dollars for this meeting. People don't think about the cost of a meeting, which is a function of the people involved, their hourly rate, the length of time of the meeting, the frequency meeting. And so, you know, it's it's one of these things that's a bit invisible. But when you stop and think about it, and if you were to take a calculator and add it up, it's probably one of the biggest costs inside of a company. I think last year it was estimated $35 billion was wasted in unproductive meetings. And the funny thing is a lot of those meetings were about how to be more productive. So uh, it's, it's, um, yes. it's a big problem. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we've got policies at leverage, you know, no agenda, no meeting. There needs to be clear pre-work going in. You need to think about back to what we were saying before, not, not every time slot on your calendar is, is equally valuable. Right. And so you have to also not just think about your, Hourly rate is a blended average kind of concept, but back to what I was saying before, your brain has different horsepower at different times of the day, and it's worth different amounts based off of the context of, do you have a laptop with you? Are you tired? Are you in a car? In a car? And so it's not just about your hourly rate, but it's like, what's that time slot worth to you? And so if you can shift things to asynchronous and cut an hour meeting down to 45 minutes and you tell people... Anything that's a report out, send me on Friday a Loom video or some pre-work to read. And then on my own time, you know, I'll make the decision when to read it. Those things can add up to significant amounts of, you know, bottom line impact. Um, but yeah, it's, the right it's a lack of pre-work. Excuse me. But yeah, I think. That's one of the things. I Sometimes I'll see meetings where someone who has nothing to do with anything is not going to implement anything, doesn't, well, but they're in the meeting and it's like. I think that Why? some of that also has to do with yeah. a lack of um, clear role and responsibility. You know, all of yeah. these things, whether it's clear role and responsibilities, whether it's setting up clear goals and objectives and key results, whether it's setting up good systems and processes, it's not. It, it all takes effort. And in a lot of cases, people don't put that effort in and they just hire people, throw them in, and you don't kind of 
get this foundation right. And then what happens over time is it's like you don't even know who the decision maker is. So you just throw bodies at the problem. Before you know it, you're on a 10-person call that should have been two people. And you and that's a, that's a byproduct of just not having clear role and responsibilities and proper pre-work. So, you know, all these things take time. But again, it's an, it's not a spend, it's an investment. If you if everyone does proper pre-work, that will make the meeting more efficient. You could probably cut the meeting down. So that investment of time in the pre-work is going to pay off in terms of a shorter meeting or less meetings because maybe you'll get to the decision on the after the first meeting and you don't need a follow-up, right? But people need to invest the time up front in order to reap the benefits on the back end and people just aren't doing that and it needs to be needs to um, be integrated into into the culture of the company. Do you have a definition for why a meeting should occur? I think I think a meeting should happen for a couple reasons. One, a, a, a there's a decision that needs to be made or brainstorming that needs to happen that would require too many back and forths done over an asynchronous platform. And another would be culture building. Yeah. Because I, oh. I do I don't want to sound like a robot and just say like you could do everything with automation tools and these tools. I do think that there is a, a benefit to seeing people's faces, being in person. I'm not, I'm not proposing that everything needs to just be done with all these great tools. There is a benefit to the culture aspect, but you know, a lot of things can be decided without having a meeting, but there is a time and a place for a meeting. Like if I'm going back and forth, brainstorming, you know, something with my book launch, and, you know, sometimes you could waste 10 times the amount of time back and forth messages versus getting on a call. You can utilize breakout rooms. You could use breakout rooms with tools like Miro and do a digital whiteboarding tool and do a design thinking session. And people could put sticky notes and upvote. And before you know it, in 45 minutes, you've made some massive decisions because you're being smart about it. That otherwise, over another platform, you just wouldn't be able to get to. One of the things I also like about your work and uh, represents you is the book talks about it from a, a, a human perspective, which, and so it, it, it's not about a tool. It, it's about how are we using it? It's not about tools that are replacing people. It's about let's use processes and tools and approaches that make us more effective and efficient uh, to work yeah. together. So it's very much a, uh, I think a people oriented book that focuses on operational capabilities and efficiency. And, and look, an obvious target market for this is a manager, a leader, a business owner, because they want to get, you know, maximum output out of their team and have no, not as much slippage, but it's also equally important for an employee to, to learn this stuff because the more valuable you can be to the company and the more productive you can be, you can go on vacation and not be stressed out that things are slipping through the cracks. You can add more impact to the team and maybe accelerate uh, your bonus or your, your, your career trajectory. So there's, there's benefits on both sides, both the employee side and the, and the uh, company side of things. It's not just, you know, employees don't need to be thinking about this stuff. It's uh, it's, it's really interesting. I think a big part of, all of the stuff that we're talking about here and, and you had, you know, put focus on it earlier on is really that it's the culture of the organization that creates these behaviors or, 
or lack of discipline or what, however we want to describe it. When you come into an organization and it's clear that they want to make a lot of changes, but they're not willing to put it on the line from a cultural perspective because they're like, oh, no, our culture's fantastic. How do you help them to adjust knowing that there's certain things that you can't impact that will obviously evolve, but in, in the beginning stages, it's like it's a, it's a no-go zone. So say it again. If I go to a company and they say that they're perfect, how do I deal with them? No, if, if their culture, if you're going in, you're helping them to adjust a lot of things, but they're like, but don't touch our culture. Our culture is perfect the way it is right now. Um, but the culture is a big part of the problem. I mean, I'd probably just decide not to work with yeah. them. I mean, we, we're also picky with who we work with. Right. You know, if someone's going to be too challenging or they don't think that they have certain problems, it's you know, it's probably easier sometimes just to, it's back to kind of what, what's on your not to-do list is more important than what's on your to-do list. Like which clients you don't take is probably more important than the clients I you I think that's take. so important. You know, I've had you say that many times in the, at Columbia, because there's a mindset, I think that if we were, if we're consultants who were working, then you say yes to anything. And if you go in knowing that this isn't going to lead to anything improved, then don't do it. And, uh, I, I had that same reaction. If you see an organization that they, they, I don't know if they'll say you can't change the culture, but you can see they're not open to anything yeah. changing. Well, yeah. by definition, if nothing changes, then you don't get different results, I, right? Insanity I mean, definition. I mean, oftentimes the bottom 10% of revenue of clients eat up 90% of your energy. And sometimes some counterintuitive things that we've done is you fire your bottom 10% of clients you know, or activities like that are, are things that can almost immediately boost productivity. So yeah, I would, I would just avoid working, working with some of those people. In your book, one of the things you talk about is you separate out processes. You say an interesting thing that, uh, one thing I have to disagree with, you say that processes are sexy and, uh, I'm one of the people and you knew what I was like, uh, when I was running. I really always hated processes because I felt it constrained me from doing things I wanted to do. But again, in reading how you read it, 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 it's a way of improving things, creating more time, the ability to strategize what you do and go in different directions. But I wanted you to take, take a little bit of time talking about processes, projects, and how you work with a company on a process project portfolio kind of level. You, you, you have a real nice yeah. focus on that. I think, I think that for most people, processes give freedom versus constraint because okay. you can always have the flexibility that a process could have a step where it's go and use your judgment on this. And yeah. so you could always hack that argument by having a flexible process, but it's still a process because one step just tells you to do that. But I think it in general gives you freedom because if you can't be replaced, you can't be promoted. And if it's Something that's repeatable, that's well-defined. If you're a senior person listening to this, you should be more of a process creator than executor for the most part. And, you know, that's creating processes in general. I mean, there's exceptions to every rule, but that requires high level, a, a higher level position than someone that can just go and follow a process that, you know, was created. So... In general, you want the more senior people, creative people to be creating it. Once it's created, then you want to train people and pass it off. So now you can go and work on 
the next project or creating the next process. And so I think it gives you freedom because it, it allows you a, a game plan and a path to step out of that process, free up your time again to go and work on like new initiatives. And um, I talk about the book, The Difference Between Project Management and Process Management, which I I don't know if I haven't seen that talked about in other books. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is a bit of a unique thing that we talk about. And it's really talking about what is a pro, you know, what is a process versus a project? A lot of people don't make, don't make that distinction. And, you know, for, uh, for me, and I got this from, uh, who, who is the CEO of process street, but you know, the maturity of a company as a company matures, the ratio of processes to projects should go up, meaning a project. It's kind of like, the first time the first time you do a cross country trip and there's no google maps and thomas guides or anything you make you make a lot of wrong turns it's a project you're you're laying out milestones i'm in new york i'm going to make a pit stop in philadelphia another here and you know you have tasks to document what you've done and it's you know the first time first territory first time you're doing it and maybe you do a handful of trips and you refine it, but then after a certain while and after Google Maps is invented and other things, there's no more unknown that has to be figured out. Like you could rinse and repeat it and that turns from a project to a process. And I think that's a sign of maturity of a company. The more repeatable, you, the more you invest in figuring things out, the more you're turning projects into processes, the more repeatable it is the more you can hand it off to other people, the more you can automate things, the less risk you have of errors occurring. And sometimes fixing an error just takes 10 times longer than doing it right the first time. And so that's a that's a big part of kind of the, the last uh, section of the book. Yeah, you've done the remarkable. I now see processes as sexy. Yeah. Because right. they give you freedom. <laughs> and free, But I, I, in many cases where processes are used wrong, that's what I used to experience, I, and I think many of us do. And so now it's limiting you. And I see Laurel smiling, but 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 the way you're talking about processes are sexy because they create freedom. <laughs> I, I'm I'm smiling because I um, wholeheartedly agree with Nick because that's that that takes you down the right path, and everybody's on the same road trip. Then, right? Like, yeah. if you want to stop at this gas station or you want to have lunch at this place, you could do that. But at the end of the day, you're all getting the same destination at the time that you guys committed to. And that's what's important. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, not to come off uh, cocky, I do believe that there is enough off as cocky. research. This is the place for... <laughs> all right, I'll come off yeah. cocky Let's here. Do this. Let's I do, do this. I, I do think, and I've just seen at this point, thousands of companies that we've worked with go through this stuff where I believe it's... It's not subjective, the material of the book. It's like objective and it's almost like a theory that will stand the test of time that's tool agnostic. And in 20 years from now, everything, all the frameworks and thinking uh, models in the book will stand the test of time and people will um, still benefit just as much in 20 years. Yeah, I would I would wholeheartedly agree. And anybody that, that is wanting to... Um, get your book. Um, you can also go to uh, www.comingupforair.com to check it out. Come up, come up for air.com. Oh, what did I say? Coming up? Um, it's the Canadian version. <laughs> <laughs> come up for air. Thanks, Nick. Um, so, so I think that's really important for people to know that, that you have that avail that, um, that yeah. available to them. And, 
And if you actually want to reach out to Nick, you can check him out at www.getleverage.com. Um, I was going to say getting leverage, but you know, right? I Yours, thought I would yeah. do it right this time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That website come up We put a lot of additional bonus materials to the yeah. book. The book was already Harper Collins is my publisher and it's already 320 pages long. They wouldn't let me do any, any more. It was, but it's not a fluffy book that you could summarize in 10 pages. It's a, it's a, it's a very, it's very action packed book and I'm an efficiency geek. So if I weren't, you can imagine it's probably be like 1400 pages, but we have another 50 to hundred pages of additional advanced material and checklists and uh, bonus calculators and, and things that, uh, go in tandem with the book that you can see on that website. And uh, and you were number three on Wall Street book review. Oh, you saw that news? Uh, yeah, yesterday. I, I, uh, I yesterday checked, we got the I, yeah, news. Yeah, so congratulations on that. That's really fantastic. Yeah, that was that was a nice surprise yesterday. We got a uh, number three for um, nonfiction uh, business hardcover yeah. books yeah. this week. It's fantastic. I um I'm I'm enjoying the book. I actually had to read. I think it was chapter two twice because I'm like, whoa, that was a lot. And then I had to go back before I went down the path again. And I'm like, maybe I should re- read the whole book once without going back, but I couldn't do it. Um, so I'm, <laughs> I am very excited uh, at what it's going to add for value to me and my clients and my team. So thank you for that. Um, and I, I guess we're coming kind of closer to the end of our, our time with you, Nick, which is too bad because just like your book where you need extra time um, on your website, we need extra time with you. But uh, I guess one question I have for you is uh, what if, if you had a superpower, what, what would you define it as when looking at yourself? And, and then how do you water that superpower on a daily basis, weekly basis? Um, I'm good at finding more efficient ways of doing things, I would say. That was an easy out. Yeah, it was a layout. <laughs> That's good. But, but you know, I, I, used, I come from a financial engineering background. I was an algorithmic trader for eight years. And in that space, you know, microseconds can literally mean millions. So I'm programmed to be looking at things. How can I save a microsecond? How can I automate this one step? And I look at everything through that lens and I... Also, being an engineer, if I see something that bothers me, my initial reaction is, how, how do I never have to deal with this again? How do I, what do I have to build, create, figure out? And so it's kind of the combination of those two things that, um, you know, has ultimately led me down this, you know, fun journey of figuring out best practices, how modern teams can be more efficient and collaborate properly together. And so how do you water that on a regular basis to keep it sharp? Talk with my team, talk with clients. Um, um, I'm always tinkering with new, new different tools. So fantastic. tons of ways. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I've, I don't even know which key thing I'm taking away because there's so much that I'm taking away from, from today's chat, Ed. Is there, is there a specific thing that, that really was impactful for you? Well, yeah, I uh, I was hoping uh, to have left time, but I guess we didn't do it. For to me, the key thing is the knowledge base, uh, which gets into the issue. And Nick, I know, is laughing. We joke about that, but being a, <laughs> yeah, a, a knowledge yeah, the, the, the chief knowledge <laughs> officer of NASA, and we don't talk we about talk the about whole third part of my book. <laughs> yeah, which is uh, the most important part. But maybe we, we that's a comeback. But what what would you very briefly say about 
the importance of knowledge base and uh, what that is and well, how knowledge contributes the to the mission. Part of my, yeah, it's the whole third part of my book, and you know, it's critical. It's a whole. Yeah. It's one third of my book is all about knowledge, and I would say, you know, if you're investing money into someone to figure something out, if that's not captured and then that person leaves, it's just a complete loss, right? So you're, you have a lot of slippage. Second, it, by documenting things, it reduces the risk of an error occurring. Third, it can help with efficiency and productivity because then you have a culture where people can self-serve answer questions versus bothering other people. Um, you know, it's kind of like buying an insurance policy. Companies can buy insurance on workers' comp and other things. Documenting knowledge is like an is like an alternative form of an insurance policy. You know, you can't have an insurance policy around, a, you know, a rocket scientist quitting or your head of payroll quitting. But if you document all their knowledge, you've and you've invested, not spend, but you invested the energy and time to do those activities. That investment is similar to investing in an insurance policy because now you've de-risked, you know, um, from that person leaving and being vulnerable. And so I think it's critical. And a knowledge base is only valuable though if people look at it and they'll only look at it if it's well structured. And so you need, you know, back to kind of that principle number one, it's all about retrieval, not transfer. If you can't retrieve information out of the knowledge base, it's almost worthless. So you need to make sure that you've got a strategy to architect it properly. Yeah. How was that for one minute? I on think that's beautiful basis? and read the book because it goes into all these things beautifully. They, they connect the seemingly different kind of themes in a, in a very smart way. And uh, you know, in terms of knowledge, you quote Benjamin Franklin, who said an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. And, uh, and yeah. certainly I agree with that. So it's, uh, there, there's a lot of wonderful material there. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me, guys. This was fun. No, thank you so much, Nick. And um, I'll probably be uh, reaching out to you after I finish the book because I'll probably have to read it like four times to get all of it. Um, so from send him an email and he can determine which category to put you I'll, in. I, I will. I'll, yeah. I'll email him and then text him. And then, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I, I have chat GPT integrated in, so you'll get an automated <laughs> response so perfectly. <laughs> he's a response Thanks. for laurel oh my gosh that is yeah, no. like you you actually had me without a comment and that never happened so there we go that's right that's all right. right well thank you so much for being on the mission driven leader podcast and we can't wait to talk with you again bye nick yeah thank you so Thanks much nick. congratulations thank you very much Thanks for listening to the mission driven leader podcast presented by taleoconnects.com be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review wherever you listen to the show. 